Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel, chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 16, and then do a little jump up to verses 20 through 22. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel... 30,000. He and all his men went to Balah to Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it up from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore the Lord struck him down, and he, deci- he died beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from the window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, She despised him in her heart. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in the full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, or anyone from your house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. The reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Today, um, we're going to continue in our sermon series on the life of David. And I get the privilege of introducing um, our guest who is going to be preaching this morning. 
And Karen Hughes is one of our own. Um, she has been here since day one of the Vine. And uh, she right now is serving on our advisory team too as well. And so we're so grateful for that. And for those of you who don't know Karen, there is, she served um, George W. when he was the governor of Texas and then went with him to the White House. Uh, she was also the one, the first one to address the nation on 9-11 after that happened. Uh, she then has a PR firm, and so she um, goes and meets with some of the CEOs from all different parts of the world. So I was thinking about this. I'm thinking, okay, she's governors, presidents, world leaders, and then she meets with Mark and Ted. <laughs> Just a couple knuckleheads trying to straighten us out. So. Thank you for the, just the wisdom that she pours in. And, and, and before she comes up, just a couple more quick things um, about Karen that I absolutely love. And um, again, she has the gift of, of wisdom. And, and I love that, again, holding all these things that she's done throughout her life, one of her passions is teaching kids about Jesus Christ. She loves to be in children's ministry ever since I've known Karen. She's been a part of it. She serves right now in our our Vine Kids, and, and helps lead that. So um, just such a gift. And so let's just bring her up with a warm round of applause, and we're in for quite a treat today. Thank you, Ted. Well, thank you for that very generous introduction. I, I will admit I have never given a sermon in church before, so this is a first for me, so bear with me. Um, Jerry and I just feel so blessed to be a part of this wonderful Vine community and to have the opportunity to get to know and do life with so many of you. Some of you may remember when our community member Stephanie Ragsdale uh, gave a sermon last fall, Mark shared that she was initially reluctant to do so until she looked at the scripture and she realized it was so relevant to her life experience that she told Mark, dang, I have to do this. Well, when Mark asked me to do a sermon and sent me today's scripture, I read it carefully and then read it a few more times. Uh, poor Uzzah was struck dead for trying to straighten up the ark, perhaps a control freak, and an out-of-control King David danced so deliriously that he exposed himself much to the anger of his wife, and so I asked Mark, whatever made you think of me? Mark promised that he didn't think of me as either out of control or a control freak. This is just where we find ourselves in the story, our sermon series of the life and times of King David. So let's try to unpack it together. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let's start with a little context. We've been studying the life of King David, a very unlikely king. God was unhappy with the first king of Israel, King Saul. So God told the prophet Samuel to go to Jesse's house because he had chosen one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. So Samuel went through seven of Jesse's sons with God saying, not that one, not that one, not that one, seven times until Samuel finally asked Jesse, do you have any more sons? And Jesse replied, well, the youngest one is out back keeping the sheep, and that was David, and that was the one that God anointed. By the time we get to today's story, David looms large. He became a national hero by slaying the Philistine giant Goliath with his slingshot and a single stone. 
He's led the army to great military victories for Israel. For almost 15 years after he was chosen king, he was on the run from King Saul, who was jealous of David and trying to kill him. But Saul is now dead, and David is finally the unrivaled king. And King David has a big vision. He's worked to unite all the tribes of Israel into one kingdom. They had been divided, but he's brought them together under his leadership. He's established a brand new capital city, Jerusalem, the city of David. And there is one final piece that is very important to him to pull everything together. David wants to bring the Ark of the Lord to his new capital city so that all of Israel can worship the Lord together in one place and so that the Lord, who David knows is the true king of Israel, would be in the midst of the people. Now, like any good politician, David enlists people's buy-in for his vision. He brings together what the scripture describes as the whole assembly of Israel, as well as representatives of his army. And he tells them, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites, who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. Now the ark of the Lord was a very special treasure indeed. It was the physical manifestation of God's presence with his people, and God himself had told Moses to construct it. In Exodus, God said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God had given very specific design instructions for the ark, down to the last cubit. The ark was made of acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold, and God had given very detailed instructions about how it should be cared for and transported to reinforce its holiness and the fact that it represented the very presence of God, holy treasure indeed. Now, Israel's great rival, the Philistines, had actually captured the ark at one point, but wherever they put it, people died and plagues broke out because God was not happy that it was no longer with the Israelites. And so the Philistines finally loaded it back up on a cart and sent it back to Israel. It reminds me of that classic O. Henry short story, The Ransom of Red Chief, where two criminals kidnap a 10-year-old boy and they try to extort a ransom payment from the father but the boy's behavior is so terrible with his malicious pranks and incessant chatter that he drives the criminals crazy and ultimately they end up paying the father to take him back. Well, when the ark is sent back to the Israelites, it ends up at the home of a man named Abinadad and his two sons, Uzzah and Ahio. And that's where it is when David goes to retrieve it. Now, picture this scene. It's a huge national celebration. Think a combination of Fourth of July and Thanksgiving. 30,000 men gathered to retrieve the Ark of the Lord and bring it back to its rightful place in the new capital city. And our scripture tells us David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Then suddenly the oxen stumble and disaster strikes. Uzzah reaches out his hand to straighten up the ark, and he is struck dead on the spot. That's a pretty dramatic way to end a party, like a lightning bolt from heaven. 
I suspect for many of us, Uzzah's story is, is one of those Old Testament stories about a wrathful God that seems hard to understand. After all, Uzzah's intentions seemed good. The oxen were stumbled, he's worried the cart's going to, the ark's going to fall, and he tries to straighten it up. To be honest, God's reaction seems harsh. The poor guy is just trying to keep the ark on the wagon, and you strike him dead? But remember, God had given very detailed instructions about how the ark was to be treated. It was not supposed to be on a cart in the first place. God wanted it to be hand-carried reverently by people. So he had ordered gold rings to be made so that it could be carried on poles, on men's shoulders, not loaded up like some kind of ordinary everyday item on a cart drawn by animals. And God had been explicit that even those who carried the ark should not touch it. That was the reason for the rings and the poles. In Numbers, God tells Moses, they must not touch the holy things or they will die. Now the ark had been at Uzzah's house. Perhaps he'd gotten a little too careless or cavalier about its presence. Perhaps he thought God needed his help or that somehow he could control the presence of God. Whatever the reason, scripture tells us when Uzzah's hand went out to straighten the ark, God's anger was kindled and Uzzah was struck dead. I think we can draw a few lessons from this story. First, God keeps his word. He does what he says he will do. God had said not to touch the ark or the result would be death. For Uzzah, God keeping his word cost him his earthly life. For us, God keeping his word means we can count on eternal life through our faith in God's Son. Think of all the promises God makes to us in Scripture. You are chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. Your sins are forgiven. You are a child of God. You are heirs to the kingdom. You are a new creation in Christ. Christ is with you always to the end of the age. God came in Christ not to condemn the world, but to save the world. All those promises are true, and you can rely on them because God keeps his word. He is a promise keeper, and that is very good news indeed. Second, God's presence is never to be taken lightly. The ark was the very symbol of God's presence, so when you approach it, you do so as a sinner standing before a holy God who hates sin and evil. Our approach to God must always be one of holy respect and reverence. Moses learned this lesson in his encounter with God at the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3 tells us, Moses saw flames within the bush, but the bush was not burning. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Yes, God is loving. He is faithful. He is forgiving. He is also just and holy and righteous. 
I know that I am sometimes tempted to think only about God's love and grace and forgiveness and to forget and forget to give enough reverent awe to his power, his majesty, his holiness, and his justice. Finally, I think this story gives us a lesson about how to approach God. We are created in his image, but he is far greater than anything we can imagine. The creator of the universe and everything that is in it. The Bible tells us that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And that means God is always to be approached with what I saw referred to as holy awe. The Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. I don't think that means fright, but it does mean a healthy reverence and respect. Eugene Peterson described it as a fear that pulls us out of our preoccupation with ourselves, our feelings, or our circumstances, and into a world of wonder. Not scared to death, but astonished, fascinated, full of wonder and awe. Mark told me this reminds him of something he heard about mountain climbing. The most dangerous thing you can do when you are scaling a mighty mountain is to get too comfortable. You should never underestimate the power and bigness and might of the mountain. And we have an even bigger God. So what lessons does King David draw from the death of Uzzah? Scripture tells us first he's angry, and I imagine humiliated, embarrassed. He's assembled tens of thousands of people from all over his kingdom. He's bringing the ark to his new capital, and then the Lord shuts down the party. Remember, this, is, this was all David's idea, so there's a lot on the line for his leadership. But second, Scripture says, David was afraid. And sometimes the fear of God is what leads to greater understanding. After Uzzah's death, David decides he doesn't want to bring the ark, this dangerous treasure, to his capital city right now, so he sends it to the home of Obed, where it stays for three months. Obed apparently cares for it with the proper reverence and respect, and scripture says he and his household were greatly blessed. So the presence of God, deadly dangerous for Uzzah, who took it lightly or carelessly or tried to control it, can also bring great blessings, as it did to the house of Obed. When King David sees that good things are happening at Obed's place, he goes once again to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, this time with great respect for the instructions God had given. This time, he does not put it on a cart, but has it carried by poles, as the scripture instructed. He offers sacrifices. And then, as he brings the ark into Jerusalem, he breaks out in uninhibited worship. As our scripture tells us, David danced before the Lord with all his might. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. You've probably all heard the phrase, dance like nobody's watching. Well, that's exactly what David did. He was so exuberant, so full of joy, so full of worship that he was leaping and dancing and his clothes were coming off and he didn't even care. Now, it's an understatement to say royalty doesn't usually behave this way. During my time in government, when Ted mentioned I worked for President Bush, I had the opportunity to meet several kings. They were always very regally dressed, Surrounded by attendants, their palaces were elaborate, everything was designed to showcase the majesty of the king. 
Before a lunch with Queen Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace, we had several hours of briefings, incredible details about what to do and what not to do. For example, never to touch the queen until and unless she reached out and touched you first. We were told exactly how to enter the room, how to leave it. The seating was all assigned in advance. I remember spending much of the meal worried about whether I was picking up the right fork. Um, kings and queens are very concerned about appearances and the way they're viewed by their subjects. But on this day, King David doesn't care about any of that. He was consumed in joyful worship of his Lord and God. It reminds me of the words from a Chris Tomlin song that I love that says, Joy, unspeakable joy, overflowing well, no tongue can tell. Joy, unspeakable joy, rises in my soul, never lets me go. David knew the joy that comes from being in God's presence. And he knew that joy frees us from any concern about what other people think. David was totally concerned about the presence and proper worship of God and totally unconcerned about his own appearance. His focus was on God, not his own status. But David's wife doesn't share that view. In fact, as she looks at King David leaping and dancing, the scripture says she despised him in her heart. Despised. Now, that's a pretty big fight getting ready to happen. You can imagine the sarcasm dripping from her voice as she says when he returns home, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David's wife obviously did not feel the joy of the Lord's presence. She was thinking only about earthly appearances. Her audience was the people, but David's audience was the Lord. David is not only unapologetic, he promises even more. I will make myself yet more undignified than this, and I will be abased in my own eyes. Because David is focused not on appearances, but on God alone. Can you recall a time when you felt that unbridled joy? When you felt the presence of the Lord and were overcome with gratitude and thanksgiving and worship? Maybe when you first realized that Jesus had died for you and for me, that our sins are forgiven, that we can approach God not because of anything we have done, but solely because of what Jesus did. One of the great gifts of Jesus' life and death is that we now have access to our holy God. The curtain that separated people from God's holy presence in the temple was torn when Jesus died. We don't have to go to a temple to find God's presence. In fact, we are promised that our own bodies have become temples because when we believe in Jesus Christ, God's spirit makes a home in us. And if God's presence is in me, that means his presence is in you and others. What if we saw each other that way, as temples of God's spirit? and treated each other with the same reverent care David learned to give the ark. If we truly believe we are temples of the holy and living God, I think that would produce indescribable joy, an overflowing well bubbling over from this life to our eternal one at home with God. God promises whoever believes in him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life. We can count on that because God keeps his word. We can come into his presence with reverence and holy awe, filled with joy, but because we have a God who is far greater than anything we can ask or even envision. And that God wants to walk with us and live in us every day from now into eternity. We can rejoice in his presence and his promises. We can dance with King David, dance like nobody's watching. Picture the ark coming into the midst of the city and God coming into the midst of all our lives. And he returns to us again and again with his grace and with mercies that are new every morning. Hear this familiar yet shocking and wondrous truth. God is with you. He forgives you. And he loves you forever. And that's something worth dancing about.